Today on Pens Exchange, Pioneers of Capitalism, Economic History of the Netherlands. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Martin Prack and by Jan Luitenman Sanden. Dr. Prack is Professor of Social and Economic History at Utrecht University. He's an expert on early modern history, having authored and edited numerous publications on Dutch national history, comparative history of Europe, and global history. Dr. Van Sanden is faculty professor of global economic history at Utrecht University. His research addresses global issues such as inequality, poverty, and sustainability. Welcome, professors. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Before the 13th century, the Low Countries were a small region at the fringe of Europe. Yet, by the 17th century, the Netherlands had transformed into the most prosperous society in the world. How did such transformation occur? Today, we will be joined by Professors Prague and Van Sanden, who will discuss their most recent book, Pioneers of Capitalism, and guide us into the economic history of medieval and early modern Netherlands, telling a story about how a strong civil community and feudal institutions interacted to give birth to the first capitalist society. I want to start by discussing your approach to historic economic history, especially about the existence of discontinuities. For example, in English economic history, especially from an institutionalist reading of it, Certain momentous occurrences, such as the signing of Magna Carta and the Glorious Revolution, are often highlighted as pivotal in changing the English economic trajectory. Your treatment of Dutch economic history is very different. You emphasize the continuity between the medieval period and early modernity. Is this a peculiarity of the low countries, or do you think that, generally speaking, we tend to exaggerate the importance of some events? Uh, maybe I can uh, start uh, responding to your question. Um we ha may have given uh, the wrong impression here, perhaps, because um, I think the story that we're trying to tell is a mixture of continuities and discontinuities. So there is a continuity indeed in the, let's say, trend of economic development. So in chapter two, the book uh, demonstrates with the help of estimates of um, um, GDP per capita, so uh, the uh, state of the economy, um, how that economy develops. And the chapter clearly demonstrates that uh, looked at uh, in a long-term perspective, the Dutch economy has been growing since the high Middle Ages. So in that sense, there is continuity. But you can also see that there were stages of acceleration and stages of slower economic growth. And one stage of acceleration clearly is the 17th century or what is also popularly known as the Dutch Golden Age. And that Dutch Golden Age followed on the heels of the Dutch Revolt. So an institutional uh, development triggered also inadvertently, more or less, but not completely, because there were economic aspects among the rebels uh, in their motivation to uh, rebel against uh, the Spanish king. 
but um, I don't think anyone could have foreseen this as an outcome of the process. So in that sense, there is also uh, perhaps you wouldn't call it discontinuity, but at least a change in the pace of economic development. Perhaps I can add that also in the British case, there is an increased interest into the continuity between the Middle Ages and the early modern period. The work by Steve Broadberry on growth accounting, Bruce Campbell on long-term trends in the economy. I could, could mention others as well. They have the, a very similar approach to the ones that we have developed in our book. So I don't think there is a, 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 a very large contrast. You start the book by looking at this evidence of economic development within the Netherlands across several measures, population size, GDP estimates, urbanization, literacy, violence, and so on. By the 17th century, we can confidently say that the Dutch were the most productive and wealthy society in the world. A paradox, however, is that its people height and life expectancy were lower than centuries prior. How do we reconcile this? I think we have to to realize that there is always a price to be paid for economic development in this uh, early modern or late medieval period. Urbanization leads to uh, congested cities to uh, which, in which all kinds of diseases circulate, which are very polluted. And that uh, means that the life expectancy in those cities is relatively low. It's considered to be the death trap of, of Europe, the cities of, of Holland in the 17th and 18th century. So, uh, and this is a, a very European phenomenon. If you look at very long-term trends in, in, for example, the height of people, the stature of people, then the, the Europeans are the longest just after the Roman Empire collapsed. So when all civilization, in a way, uh, uh, was discontinued and there were no cities anymore, that was a kind of paradise for people who, uh, uh, in terms of uh, disease environment. And uh, when economic progress accelerated, you had more cities and you had more diseases and you had a shorter life expectancy. So urbanization is kind of the key to understand this. Yes, they were not able yet to understand completely what was uh, the cause of this. But the elite in urban uh, in, in cities went to the countryside. They knew especially in summertime, that it was a very unhealthy place to live. And they had their mansions, their estates outside the cities in order to be far away from the polluted cities. Moving on to geographical aspects now that we're talking about it, you look into the early north-south divide in the Low Countries as kind of irrelevant uh, geographic division. Flanders and Brabant were early on the wildest regions with their feudal institutions and their important connections to the European core. The Frisian North was peripheral at best. It was much poorer, but also less hierarchical, more autonomous and self-reliant. And finally, in the middle, we have Gelderland, Utrecht, and most importantly, Holland. Could you elaborate a little bit on what was special about these middle regions that allowed capitalism to especially flourish here? So the argument um, we make is that um, you could say that the middle had the best of both worlds. So on the one hand, it benefited from some institutions that had emerged uh, also in uh, other parts of Europe. 
uh, feudal institutions. Um, but then at the same time, it didn't have feudalism in the traditional sense uh, of a, a very hierarchical uh, system of governance. So um, uh, being able to um, copy elements of the uh, institutional structures on both sides of that divide worked out uh, well for those regions. They also benefited from being uh, geographically located quite close to, as you correctly describe, uh, the center of major economic activities in uh, what is now Belgium, uh, but was in those days the Burgundian Netherlands. Uh, Holland uh, also became quite early on integrated in the Burgundian territories. Uh, and also benefited, of course, from the economies of scale that uh, those territories uh, generated. So, uh, as I said, it was benefiting from being in the middle of those uh, two uh, systems. A small comment uh, uh, on your question. You, you, see, you implicate that Friesland was a very poor country, the, the north of the the low countries, the Friesland Groningen was a, a poor part of the country. That is perhaps, uh, if we have created that impression, that's not completely correct. I think it was a, a region without big cities and which are without the international activities that developed in Holland. But it was a rich uh, region in terms of livestock farming. And in generally, they were, they were wealthy and, and doing well. So they had their own a lot of trade as well. So um, we should not be too unhappy about the performance of the Frisians in this respect. So they were relatively poor compared to Holland, but not generally. Well, in the 17th century, but maybe not that much uh, in the Middle Ages. Okay, let's move. The, the Black Death is one of the most critical events in human history. By causing the death of many people across Eurasia, it increased the bargaining position of those who survived. The low countries are an interesting case mainly because they did not suffer comparatively as much as the rest of Europe. What were the consequences of the Black Death in the low countries compared to the rest of Europe? Do we see the typical implications of the Malthusian model? It is in indeed true that the Black Death did not have the same kind of massive impact in Holland uh, and in the low countries in general, we think compared to uh, England or Italy, but it did strike quite a bit. And we know that the population of uh, certain cities and villages uh, went down. So, uh, but the, the most important impact it had was that you see that GDP per capita uh, immediately responds to this. And with the decline of population, uh, income levels increase very fast. And that is an indication that this is behaving like a kind of a market economy, a capitalist market economy, in which the new scarcity of labor, which is the result of the Black Death, is translated in higher labor productivity and higher income levels. And that's a, a link that we see also in England, but it's not there in other parts of Europe, for example, not in Sweden or in Spain. So it, it points out that uh, the, the, we are studying here a, a market economy which is responding 
uh, to the Black Death in in a way which is what economists would expect to happen, that is economic growth. And in a way, it's the start of the economic uh, growth process that it, it finally results in the golden age of the 17th century. Okay, let's move forward some centuries now. And let's talk now about the economic consequences of the Dutch revolt in the 16th, 17th centuries. So the revolt stemmed from the religious upheaval of the Reformation and the imperial ambitions of Charles I and Philip II of Spain. It led to the creation of this newly independent state, the Dutch Republic, but also consolidated the rest of the Low Countries into a state of its own. You mentioned this created a quasi-experiment to compare the development of these societies. So how does the economic trajectory of these states differ afterwards? So I think it's important to recognize that the Southern Low Countries did not become an independent country, but remained, as it were, a colony of Spain. And uh, it was later transferred to Austria under the same Habsburg dynasty. So it took until 1830 before the country became an independent country. And you can see the results of all of that to some extent in the uh, economic trajectory that uh, the North and the South were experiencing in the 17th and 18th century. So in the North, um, the economy, particularly in the 17th century, was booming. I think there has been a tendency to overstate uh, the problems in the South, but nonetheless, they were... Uh, no longer the most important commercial uh, area in Northwestern Europe at the time. That position was taken over by Holland and uh, Amsterdam in particular. And uh, the uh, institutional background to that is on the one hand, as I already articulated, the coming of an independent state uh, in the North that allowed uh, the commercial elites to uh, carve out uh, not only, let's say, uh, local independent economic policies, but also to arm themselves with the help of the army and the fleet to represent their economic interests around the world. And this is what we see happening almost immediately, and that uh, the Dutch are settling in, well, what we've come to know as colonies in Asia, in the New World, in Africa. And something similar is not happening or hardly at all in the Southern Netherlands. So this demonstrates how the uh, state structures in uh, the North were enabling commercial expansion, whereas in the South they were in many ways obstructing uh, a similar development. And what about the success of the North? How does the basically, for example, the migration of the merchant elite or other intellectuals or other people that may have disagreed with the colonization efforts, as you call, of the Spanish that flee to the Netherlands, how does that affect the development there? So uh, research um, in uh, by one of our colleagues in Utrecht, Oscar Gelderblom, has demonstrated that uh, the direct impact of uh, the migration of merchants from Antwerp and Amsterdam was limited, uh, at least not as important as has been thought in the past. But it is a fact that a lot of new initiatives, uh, which uh, emerged in the late 16th and early 17th century, 
came out of collaborations between local merchants in Amsterdam and Holland more generally, and immigrants from Antwerp. So in that sense, there the injection of capital and uh, uh, human capital also, so uh, financial capital and human capital, uh, they were uh, important. I think it would be foolish to deny that um, uh, this could have happened without uh, the uh, transferal of knowledge and uh, money and networks from Antwerp to Holland. So now that we're talking about colonization efforts, let's move into the Dutch Empire. I want to focus previous to our discussion on colonization. I want to discuss specifically the Dutch East India Company because I think it's considered one of the forerunners of modernity as it manifests already the characteristics of modern corporations with legal personhood, permanent capital, transferable shares, separation of ownership and management, limited liability, and so on. So how would you say, what was the importance of the Dutch East India Company in the development of the Dutch Republic? Well, part of the story is that economic growth was already very fast and the, uh, the Dutch economy was already expanding before 1600, so before the establishment of the Dutch East India Company. It is not the origin of the golden age or the origin of the modern economy that we find in, in the 17th century. But it, of course, had a huge impact in terms of accelerating uh, overseas expansion. And this became a very profitable part of the Dutch economy in which uh, large amounts of money were being earned and in which uh, a large part of the labor force was active. So it added an important dimension to the Dutch economy, but it did not lay the f foundation of the economic success of the, of the 17th century. That would not be consistent with the views that we have developed in the book. In terms of institutional changes, you do not see many uh, similar institutions emerge in the course of the 17th and 18th century. Uh, there are a few examples, but did not lead to a, a massive boom in uh, stock-based companies that had to wait until the 19th century before this, this model of a stock-based company really became very important in the economy at large. I must confess that one of the treatments in your book that I found the most interesting is when you dealt about the moral duality of slavery within the Dutch society, because it's a society that you have emphasized it values so much the value of individual freedom. So how does the slave trade become a thing in the Dutch Empire, in the Batavian colony, which was colonized by the Dutch East India Company? And second, what was the economic importance to the development of the Netherlands itself of slavery? We have to realize first that slavery was not an indigenous institution in the Dutch Republic. So in uh, 1580 or 1590, there were no slaves in the Netherlands and, and there, there had been legal, uh, how do you say, uh, legal decisions uh, up to free slaves which had been imported into the low countries in the 16th century. Uh, also, in the 17th century, uh, slavery was important for the Dutch, uh, for the VOC, for the Dutch East India Company. But the slave system uh, of Suriname, uh, which became important in the 18th century, was still very 
small in terms of its impact on the Dutch economy. So it's too simple to say that the Dutch Republic and the, the Golden Age was based on slave labor. Slave labor uh, became important, increasingly important in, uh, in the 18th century uh, when it supplied 5 to 10% of the labor force of what you could call the the greater Dutch economy, which includes Suriname, the Cape Colony, uh, Indonesia. Uh, if you then look at that part of the world, which is governed by the Dutch, then slaves uh, are perhaps at its peak 10% of the total labor force. But it was uh, a system which had a big impact on the regions in which it was established. So it has had a huge impact on the economic and social and political history of Suriname, of the Cape Colony, now South Africa, of parts of Indonesia. So the, eff the effect on the periphery was perhaps even bigger than the effect on the, the core region. A large part of your book is devoted to understanding how informal institutions such as guilds, corporations, and semi-public organizations provided the necessary support for market activities to thrive. However, the government of cities and regions also played important roles in creating focal points of cooperation among the many factions. You call this a coordinated market economy. How do you determine the arrangements to be welfare-enhancing and not just be some sort of rentier type of capitalism? Yes, so um, maybe first of all, um, I think it would be more correct to uh, uh, call uh, guilds uh, and other types of corporations also formal institutions uh, because they relied on uh, regulations, they had uh, uh, certain types of uh, income, um, they were established by official documents from the local authority. So in many ways, there was a strong a formal aspect, but the, the word informal is um, uh, helpful to the extent uh, that it underlines that these were not state institutions. So they were uh, established under uh, state regulations but they were not ruled or governed by the states, but by their own membership. And so this is very, a very important part of what we emphasize in the book was uh, a significant feature of uh, the Dutch Republic, which was its strongly developed civic society and the role that particularly the middle classes played in these civic institutions. Now, the... The core of your question, of course, is how can we be sure that this was not rentier capitalism? And just uh, to be sure, there were obvious uh, elements of exploitation and rentier capitalism uh, in the Dutch Republic. There is no way to deny that. But there were also important uh, mechanisms of uh, the redistribution of wealth and to list uh, just a few. So we um, demonstrate that real wages were relatively high in the Dutch Republic compared to other countries, and they increased at least uh, in the first half of the 17th century. The employment opportunities were huge in the Dutch Republic, obviously one of the reasons why wages were high. Welfare arrangements were uh, generous compared to uh, uh, most other European countries at the time. And as a result of all of these uh, 
the, of this situation, we also see a huge influx of workers from other regions in Europe who obviously came to the Dutch Republic because they saw it as an opportunity to benefit from the economic growth that was going on there. So although uh, poverty was widespread and uh, by modern standards quite severe in uh, 17th century Holland, by the standards of its age, it was uh, not only prosperous for the rich, but also to at least some extent for working class people. And uh, what is interesting, for example, is that in the 18th century, we see uh, how uh, rich people, for example, are uh, aware of the necessity to tax themselves uh, more severely because of the uh, financial problems that uh, the Dutch Republic was facing, but also because they are anxious about uh, public uh, opinion and a possible revolt that actually did break out uh, during that time. Another aspect that we emphasize in the book is that, again, gender equality was uh, not at all uh, on the cards in the Dutch uh, 17th century. But again, compared to other European countries, there are aspects in which women uh, had a, a more fulfilling life, if you will, in the Netherlands. And this is something that a lot of foreign commentators uh, notice when they uh, write uh, reports about their visits uh, to the country. They, they all the time underline that women are uh, behaving in ways that are less subservient than you would find in their own country of origin. Okay, let's then talk about basically the 18th century and the things that we've been discussing. So you end the book specifically looking at this period at the turn of the Dutch Republic, and you take this perspective that highlights continuities with the previous periods, counter-arguing the pessimistic narratives about general economic decline by several measures. However, even if living standards continue to increase and the general institutions that supported the previous growth spurts did not drastically change. Clear that just as in the early centuries when the dynamic core region in the North Sea had moved from Flanders to Holland, in the 18th century it started to shift to England. Why? Why did the Dutch state relinquish its position as a prominent global economic superpower? So maybe before Jan Luijter takes over, let me say that it is easy to confuse economic growth and economic leadership. And so in a lot of these debates, people are assuming that if you lose economic leadership, this automatically will lead to economic decline. And this is not necessarily true, as Jan Luijter will now explain. But one of the, the drivers of this change from Holland to England was uh, the fact that England was simply a, a larger state which developed a strong navy, which was able to beat the Dutch in various commercial wars and therefore was able to acquire larger uh, overseas markets. And uh, the Dutch were not able, because of the relatively small size of the country, to continue competing with them. So this was a strategic advantage, which was uh, clearly on, on the side of the, of the, of the British. Uh, the, the other thing is that capitalism is always mobile. It always changes from one center to another. Uh, 200 years after the, the transition from uh, Holland to England, the, the transition from England to North America started. 
So there's nothing mysterious about that. It's just part of life. And as Marta already emphasized, it does not lead to economic decline. Uh, per se, you can have a stable and even growing economy if you are not the leader of the world economy. And that is uh, also happening in Holland in, uh, and in the Netherlands in general in the 18th century. Having said that, of course, the transition itself was a difficult phase for the Dutch economy in the 18th century. And to come back to one of your earlier questions about slavery, we interpret the rise and uh, the rising importance of slavery, but also, for example, of financial services as an element of that transition. And uh, that underlines a point that Jan Luyten made earlier. The Dutch Golden Age was not the result of slavery. In a way, uh, the rise uh, of Dutch slavery was a consequence of the Golden Age. I must confess that before reading the book, I had a less than superficial understanding of Dutch history. I knew of the simplest facts, but had no nuanced position. Hence, I want to conclude or talk by asking, what is the one thing that you wish everyone knew about Dutch economic history that is maybe not properly understood in the literature? Shall I start, Marta? I think one of the obsessions for, of historians in general uh, concerning the Netherlands is that they are always focusing on the golden age. And, uh, and one of the main ideas of this book is that a lot is happening before the golden age. In a way, the real miracle of Dutch economic, political, perhaps even cultural development is uh, what is happening in the 15th and the 16th century. And that would be my take-home uh, message for students, that it would be, uh, it'd be even more interesting to study this prehistory of the Golden Age than the Golden Age itself. And we are a good writing team. I had made exactly the same point in my notes. But maybe to add uh, another uh, message that comes out of the book, the importance of civic institutions in creating economic growth. Because uh, one of the inspirations uh, for this book was the idea that uh, nowadays there is really no alternative for capitalism. Right? For during much of the 20th century, people could have dreamed about uh, socialism as an alternative, but we are all aware that the promises of socialism have not been fulfilled in real life. So what we need are ideas about how to improve capitalism. And one of the sort of uh, subterranean, if you will, messages of the book is that it is possible to have capitalism that does not automatically lead to extreme forms of exploitation, although there were elements of that in Dutch history too. But the history of the Netherlands, in this perspective, as I uh, emphasized earlier, was a slightly different one. And uh, there was a capitalism that didn't benefit everybody in equal measure, but it did benefit large segments of society. Thank you for your time, Professor. It has been fabulously talking to you. Thank you for having us. And I hope... It was a real pleasure to be a part of this. Thank you very much. The economic history of the Low Countries tells a story of a society at the forefront of the changes 
that will ultimately make the modern world possible. A society that, while rooted in the stability of the feudal institutions, could overcome its more pernicious effects and create economic prosperity by encouraging commercial-oriented attitudes. A society that pioneered this economic system we call capitalism. This has been Pence Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.